everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Um, hey, good morning, Discovery Church. Uh, before we get too much further into our service today, I just wanted to create some space. Um, happy Mother's Day to you. And uh, part of Mother's Day, I think just want to acknowledge, especially in a place and a space that's been created to worship, just want to acknowledge some of you, this is your first Mother's Day without your mom. Some of you, this is your first Mother's Day without a baby that you thought you were going to have. And for some of you, this holiday brings up a lot of memories of any number of those things that have happened over the years. And again, before we got into the service, I just wanted to say there's space for that here. And not just in discovery, but like there's space for that with God to process that. And so as we go through the service, as we sing, just know that that's, that's not something that you have to shove to the back, but that's something that you can bring in the midst of it all. And happy Mother's Day to you. Um, I have a really good mom. Uh, I'm, I'm delighted to get to share with you uh, about her. When I was in sixth grade in middle school, we had this project, special project. Sixth grade marketplace was the project. And what they were doing it was this economics unit that we were doing in math class. And the crescendo of it all was that you had to bring a product and sell it. You had like created a little booth, you sold your product, you'd have to keep spreadsheets of here's how much I sold and where, and here's when my, my prices increased because of demand or not. And, and so you, everybody had to come up with their own different thing. So as a, as a sixth grade boy, I'm like 12, uh, it's the night before, <laughs> and I've, I've not done anything. And... I freak out because I had just gotten home from school that day, was reminded, oh, it's tomorrow. And I, like, I'm usually on top of stuff, even in sixth grade. This one just snuck up on me. And the problem was because I had so many ideas of things that I wanted to do, I couldn't pick one. And so it had gotten to the day before, and I, I'm just dying in a pile. So I'm crying to my mom. She comes alongside me, and she's like, okay, what can we do? And I'm like, here's these seven ideas that I have. Most of them require microchips, I think, which in the mid-90s is a problem. Now, not as much, but uh, she said, okay, I think we should, I think we should maybe um, have something a little bit more like, possible. Uh, and so we think through a couple different ideas, and my house is maybe a quarter mile from this ditch, um, and there's lots of rocks, river rocks that are in this ditch. And she pulls a page out of 1970 and said, hey, this is something that was cool when I was a kid, but what if you made a pet rock? What if you sold pet rocks? And I was like, mom, that's the dumbest idea I think I've ever, what would that actually mean? And she goes, okay, well, hang on one second. She runs out to our backyard, grabs the rock, grabs a Sharpie marker. So this is what my mom ends up making. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. For those of you uh, outside of the 70s, this is a pet rock. Um, on it, you can see that, that it's, it's a communicator. It, it loves to talk to you. Um, this particular one says, turn me over. So it's a pet rock. You know, you want to take care of your pet. You turn it over. Oh, and he communicates. That felt good. That's what, it, this, this rock is, uh, my favorite pet rocks that we made said, turn me over. And you turn it over, and it would just say, turn me over. And it was constant. It was so much fun. We had all, she had all these different phrases, but 
The problem was it was bedtime by the time that I was like, pull the trigger, let's do pet rocks. And I, I was just mortified. What am I going to do? I've got like six rocks to my name right now. We're supposed to have 30 of whatever it is we're supposed to sell tomorrow. I've scoured the backyard. I've scoured the front yard. There are no more rocks. And it's bedtime. So my mom puts me to bed. And I don't fall asleep very well, um, but I end up conking out. I wake up early in the morning, like as early as I can as a middle school kid. It's probably a tick before 6 a.m. And I, I walk outside my bedroom, and there's a glow coming from our kitchen. And so I peek around the corner, down the stairs, and my mom is sitting at the kitchen table covered in rocks with a Sharpie in her hand and just riding pet rock after pet rock, the funniest stuff. Like it was so, it was just amazing. And she had woken up at 4 a.m. to go to that ditch that was a quarter mile away, pulling a wagon so that she could get all these rocks in one load. I think she had to do two. Got back to our house, washed them all off, and had spent the morning just riding stupid stuff on rocks for me. And I think as I was thinking about Mother's Day and jumping into what it is we have to cover today, I was like, man, what's like my favorite memory of my mom, especially as a kid? And that was just one where in the moment, I was just like, uh, just breathtaking. Like, I'm so loved. Like, she, re- she woke up at 4 a.m. to drag a wagon of rocks around for me. Like, because I, I, I like procrastinated this project. My mom really loves me. I'm pretty sure as a sixth grade, 12-year-old boy, I did a pretty good job of communicating like, man, thank you so much. Like, it, it really undid me. But to start getting us into our frame of mind for today, I just want you to consider, what if I come downstairs and I look around and just shrug my shoulders and go back upstairs? What if the response is like an apathetic response? Like, yeah, okay, fine. There's not much gratitude. There's not much thanks. There's not much connection there. Imagine that. Or imagine I come downstairs and I burst into Shakespearean script. Oh, the mother, you have done me such wonderful deed. Like, if I'm faking it, it's all, my mom is sitting there like, what is wrong with you? Please stop. If I try to be someone I'm not, that's also not the right response in the moment. And the reason is, is because parents long to just be with their kids, to know their kids, not a version of their kids, not a manicured social media account profile, the real thing. Warts and scars and procrastination and snot and all of it. There is nothing like the love of a parent. There's no substitute. And now, to take one final bizarro turn, as you picture this scene, I want you to picture one final thing. About a week or two after this event, imagine that I bring home from school one day another grown woman, and I introduce her to my mom. She's messed up. My mom starts to sniff out pretty quick. She's actually like a homicidal maniac. Like, this is a, this is a pretty crazy situation. And I suggest to my mom that I want her to co-parent with this woman for the rest of my life. I want both moms. And in fact, not just for me, but for my siblings as well. It's like the ultimate awkward moment. If you're feeling like this is actually like violating to think about you're in it, 
like this is the right kind of thinking to get us into our story today. There's just a disruption of like, no. Why would you ever think that or do that? That's what we have coming. For those of you that are familiar with the story that we're getting into today, you will understand my deep delight when I found out, oh, we're doing the book of Acts. What's the story that hits on Mother's Day? Ananias and Sapphira. And if you don't know this story, man, buckle up because you are in for a wild ride today. We're going to read it. As we read it, uh, I've said this a lot, the last couple weeks, and, and I, I think this one's really important. If you need to visually follow along, the words will be on the screen, but I'm going to intentionally read this slow. And I would love to invite you, man, engage your imagination. Can you visualize the scene? Can you see the people? When you hear somebody's name, I want you to actually visualize what does that person look like as I understand this story. And I think we're going to get to the end of this story, particularly if you've never heard this before. There should be that same violating sense of like, what? What just happened? If you've heard this story before, there should still be this violating sense of what? How are we supposed to understand this story today? So... Without further ado, here comes the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Picture everything as we go. Now, the whole group of those who believed in Jesus were of one heart and soul. No one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. You see the scene? A gathering of people. And you've got Peter and John and Philip and Bartholomew. And they're just taking turns saying, here's my remembrance of the story of when Jesus came back to life. And everybody just wrapped attention. Can you picture the scene? And they're just sharing everything that they have. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as owned lands or houses, they sold them, and they brought the proceeds of what they sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Can you imagine the scene? A gathering of people, some who have much, some who has little. And for those who have much, it's just they're sharing everything. Everyone is taken care of in this community. It's amazing. Now we're going to get our first other specific character. Verse 36, there was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles had given, given the name Barnabas, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him, and then he brought that money, and he laid it at the disciples' feet. But a man named Ananias, can you picture Ananias' face? What's he wearing? What did you picture with Barnabas? What's his face look like? What's he wearing? I want you to picture these people. They're human beings. These are real stories. Ananias. With the consent of his wife Sapphira, they sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back some of the proceeds and brought only part, and he laid that at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asks, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? 
And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Now, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard it. Can you feel what that room is like? All this sharing, all this giving, man, just the goodness of what's here. And then all of a sudden, a catastrophic event that feels violating. What is going on? The young men came in, they wrapped up his body, and they carried him out and they buried him. Now, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. And she says, yes, that was the price. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and died. And when the young men came in, they found her dead. So they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these things. Okay, happy Mother's Day. Um, yeah, yeah now, you, now you're in on the joke. This is, this is a tough passage. What do we do with this? Depending on how you read this, I think if we just take it at face value without doing much of our work, this is a story for major concern. Is God killing people? Is his like teaching tactic turning now to like fear and shame? Like this is how I want people to experience me. What's going on? And Peter, like this is like the leader of the apostles. Is he now adopting some of these principles too? He's just now wielding like the magician's nephew. Like every, I choose who's dying. What is happening in this story? And if we don't dig a little bit deeper, I think this is one of those stories that you can read and go, I reject this whole thing. But I think if we're willing to dig a little bit deeper, we may find, man, there's a lot more going on here than what might meet the eye for a Western reader 2,000 years later. So we're going to dive in on this a little bit. Um, let me also say, if this is something that you end up looking up on your own, as I was looking up stuff this week, there are a lot of really crappy sermons out there about this story. A lot of people want to twist this into, this is why you should give money to the church. I think money's a part of this. We're going to get into that. But I don't know that that's really what's at the core of this thing. I think it's much bigger. So how do we make sense of this? As studiers of the Bible, one of the biggest principles that we can remember is that the Bible, especially in the New Testament and the newer parts of the Bible, loves to read itself. There are stories that will sound familiar. Have I heard this somewhere before? And this is one of those stories where as we get in, I want you to be asking, have, do we know any other stories where maybe a person, a couple people have just fallen down dead in front of God? And before we get there, I just want to remind us where we've come from in the book of Acts so far. In Acts 2 in particular, something amazing happened. All these followers of Jesus had gathered in this room 
And as they were praying, wind fills the room and these tongues of fire descend on them. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about this idea that what's happening in that moment is God's temple has now physically moved locations from a building into the lives of people. Drew just said that to us this morning. This is a catastrophic shift in where God is located. God is now with his people, in his people, not at a physical location. It's huge. And at this point, this movement is intensely Jewish. So they would not merely talk about this like, oh, God's presence is now with us. They would say the temple, we are the temple, both collectively and individually. That's a huge deal for this story. So effectively, we've got a story with a new temple going on. And then a couple folks fall down dead. And for those that know their story well, who know how the Bible can read itself, right away there's an immediate story that you're going to pick up on. And it's a story of when the first temple was built. God had just brought his people out of the land of slavery, out of the land of Egypt, and he'd brought them into the desert and he'd given them very specific instructions. I want to be with you. I don't just want to be over you. I want to live in your midst. And so here's how this is going to go. While you're this nomadic people moving through the desert on your way to the land that I will give you, I want you to build for me a tent. And it's going to be super special and it's going to be super specific. It's going to be smack dab in the middle of everybody. Here's exactly what I want the light fixtures to look like. Here's exactly how I want the walls to look. Here's who can come in and who needs to stay just a little bit further away. We had a sermon about two years ago on this topic. And one of the things, too, that it gets into is not just like here's a menorah, these massive seven-foot-tall solid gold menorahs, but on them I want you to have these, these olive branches or almond branches, and I want them to be blooming. And, and in this stage of blooming where the calyx, these little leaves that come out from underneath the almond, I want those to, like God's intentionality and specificity of what he wants in this temple is on point. I mean, he's leaving nothing to chance. So as this first temple is being constructed, we come upon a story of these two brothers. They're priests. Their names are Nadab and Abihu. And these guys, they're sons of Aaron, who is Moses' brother. So these are like the upper echelon of leaders, not just because of the family they belong to, but because of their spiritual leadership position. And right as this temple is completed, this tabernacle, this very first one, God comes down, there is wind and there is fire and he lives in this tent. It's this incredible moment. It's like for God, for the first time in years, he's not just God up here and people down here, but for the first time, and this is where it becomes so helpful, as a parent, God is coming into the midst of his people saying, finally, we're together again, we're family. I've got my kids back. It's this incredible, beautiful, poetic moment. And as he's gathering these kids to him, these two brothers just have this really rough moment. And here's the story of Nadab and Abihu. This is out of Leviticus 10, and it goes like this. Now Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his censer. It's like this orb. 
and they put fire in it and they laid incense on it. If you've ever been in a high church type of a service, a Catholic service, they have these like balls that have incense in them that they wave that just spread smoke and aroma around, something that God very specifically said he wanted to have happen. And they offered unholy fire before the Lord. We don't get a ton of details here, but doing a deep dive, it becomes very clear. God was so specific. This is exactly where the fire comes from. This is exactly the incense I want you to put on it. And these guys just kind of grab whatever's around. And they offer this unholy fire, not what God had wanted, such as he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord meant when he said, through those who are near me, I will show myself holy. And before all people, I will be glorified. And Aaron, their dad, was silent. Again, one of these stories that if we don't understand more about what's going on, it just causes us to go, man, this Bible, this God, I'm out. But we have to start seeing something incredibly important in this scriptural text. The key piece is this. We live in the West in the 21st century. To us, we think very individualistically about everything that we do. We have to understand a more Middle Eastern mindset. There is a collectiveness, a community here that is the concern, not the individuals. So while Nadab and Abihu may be a part of that community, in this story, they are a threat to it. And that's the thing that ultimately pulls them out. God was being so clear in this story. Don't play fast and loose. Pay attention. If you're going to treat this relationship, I'm your dad. You're my kids. We just got our family back together. If this isn't important to you, if you're not fully in, I don't know that you understand. You are not called to a simple or common life. If you are in, you're in. And this is serious business. It's fun. It's exhilarating. This is creative. It's beautiful. It's gritty. But it's serious business. Are you a part of this family? And these two guys in the book of Leviticus come in just kind of willy-nilly, doing whatever. This would be walking downstairs, seeing a table full of pet rocks, and shrugging my shoulders. Like, no, you don't get it. And I, and I think God's perspective here is I just can't afford, I'm looking at my child, the community of Israel. I cannot allow that type of mentality to happen. That, that is contagious. And, and we just can't have that. This is a critical juncture as we're redefining our relationship. And in this moment, God says, no. Now fast forward that story to where we are today. We're gonna start with this character of Barnabas. Could you picture Barnabas in your head? What did he look like? What was he wearing? And this guy, as Luke is writing it down in the book of Acts, this guy did it right. it's, It's not that he gave all that he had, it's just that he was open and honest. Here's some things that we learn about Barnabas. This guy is so cool. It says that he's a Levite. A Levite was a part, he was a priest. He was part of this priestly family. One really unique thing about Levites is they're actually not supposed to own land. So one of the questions that we have right away is in this story, we see Barnabas selling a piece of land. How did he get that? 
what's going on there? And several commentators think the, the only piece of land you could actually have as a Levite was the place that you were going to be buried someday. So a lot of them think the only thing that he really had to his name was his burial plot. That's what he was selling. And can you see the poetry in that? It's as if Barnabas is saying, hey man, I know Jesus. I'm not going to need this, at least not for very long. Somebody else can have it. We can do better work with this than what I was going to use it for. That's awesome. I like this Barnabas guy. There's also some more clues that we get from the book of Acts. In Acts 12, 12, Barnabas hosts a prayer meeting with all of the, this church at his mom's house. And to have that many people come into a house in this time and age, this was a big house. So the chances are Barnabas grew up a pretty wealthy kid with a lot of privilege. And we begin to see in how he sold his own grave site in the way that he's using his family's things. This is just a guy who's not attached to stuff. He seems like he's all in. How do you picture Barnabas? You see his face. Can you see what he's wearing? And can you see his character? It's a brilliant guy. And then Luke does something really fun just in the wording in the book of Acts. He shifts gears in Acts chapter 5 verse 1 with the word, but. Here's Barnabas. Here's all these things about Barnabas. But, which right away is like, uh uh-oh, what's about to come next? But a man named Ananias. And then we're introduced to this other character. Now, it's very clear from the text that the concern is not that they held back some of the money. It just becomes so overt from the conversation that Peter has with both Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, that the issue is that they lied. They said they gave everything, but that wasn't the truth. In uh, chapter 5, verse 4, it's this key idea that they kept back some of the proceeds. The idea is that they contrived this deed in their hearts. This is like the language you would use for a premeditated murder. The root word in the Greek is this idea of to pilfer or to embezzle. They knew exactly what they were doing. They even talked about it together, husband and wife, so that they could get their story straight together. This is kind of a messed up situation. So Peter's complaint was not that they lacked honesty, really, even at the end, but that they lacked integrity. Bringing only a part while pretending to bring the whole? They were not so much hoarders as thieves and above all liars. They wanted the credit and the prestige for their sacrificial generosity, but without the inconvenience of it. So in order to gain a reputation to which they had no right, they told a brazen lie. Their motive in giving was not to relieve the poor, but to fatten their own ego. So we have to remember what this community was all about. They were gathering. We got from the beginning of our reading today that they were, they were just sharing the story of when Jesus came back to life. But this is a group of people, much like our community, that when they got together, they just loved talking about Jesus and what Jesus taught, this life that he said, this is what it means to be a child of God. So they would have been sharing things with each other, and we're going to put some of these up on the screen. These would have just been common teachings at the very like basic one-on-one level of their community. Things that Jesus said, like, you cannot serve both God and money. You will hate one and love the other. Things like, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to inherit the kingdom. 
And you have to remember as a reader of the book of Acts that Luke is the one writing. Luke has his own gospel account where he writes about the story of Jesus. So even if we just hone in on what does Luke say and see in the teachings of Jesus about wealth and money, he says this, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Or whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest in much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? These would be things that Ananias and Sapphira are hearing on the daily in this group of people. So can you begin to feel this violating piece of like, they did what? And it even goes a step further. Much of Luke's gospels, Jesus is just preaching in, in parables. So we get things like the parables of the debtors, the story of the good Samaritan, the rich fool, the unjust steward, the rich man and Lazarus, the parable of the pounds. All of these things where Jesus is setting up these understandings of wealth and money over and over and over again. It just seems like Luke is very keen on this idea that wealth is not a sign of divine approval which I think in our culture and context today gets jacked around a little bit. One pastor said, I think I'm correct in saying that if a survey were taken about all of the possessions-related preaching from pulpits today, we will find more teaching on the promise of wealth than the dangers of wealth. And Luke seemed to be aligned with that idea. Wealth is something to be handled with caution, not a sign that God has been favorable to you. This was the culture and the teaching of this community as they're getting into it. Ananias's goal here was to win the esteem of the church, but the danger of doing that is real even today. It is serious because it causes us to be dishonest with ourselves. One of the keys to receiving God's grace is acknowledging our need it's this attitude of pride that can so often close this door. And for followers of Jesus, all we need, all of our life comes through grace, undeserved, unmerited grace. And if we try to put on a show of being what we're not, we destroy our chances for growth by blocking the grace of God. This is like coming down the stairs to a table filled with rocks and all of a sudden, exploding in the Shakespearean verse. That's not real. Why are you doing that? It's as if Ananias was saying, I want to believe. I love this community. I love what they're about. I truly do. But that as he and his wife are talking in the midnight hours, as they're going to sleep, he follows it up with this next phrase of, I just think we should be cautious. The mentality that these two needed to be hedging their bets a little bit. Like if this church thing doesn't work out, we might just need like a fallback plan. And this is the first time in hundreds of years as we get into the book of Acts where God is really with his people again, his kids, they're doing life together. God has come down and he's living right in the middle of us, literally now in the middle of us. God's presence is here. And as we look back to the story of Nadab and Abihu, we see a God who's going, I just got my kid back. Anything that will put that to threat, anything that could compromise this relationship, no. 
fundamental to understanding this story. This is a God who will not compromise. He will not allow co-parenting with something that will kill his family. Even Luke's understanding of money is that thing is vying for control and direction of your life. Do not call that mom. Don't call it dad. No compromise. One God and one God only. And so Ananias and Sapphira You are not called to a simple common life. If you're in, you're in. This is serious business. It's fun. It's exhilarating. It's creative. It's beautiful. It's gritty. And it's serious business. And there's this key piece that for Ananias and Sapphira, they're part of God's people, but as individuals, they are a threat to it. This is a story about the community of the church, not just individuals. And any threat must be removed because God's beloved is the main character, us, not I. So, weird story. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. Just again, how do we take this today? I think there's two things that are just super clear from this story. The first thing is this. It seems clear that fear and awe are the point of this story. In verses 5.5 and 5.11 in Acts, that's the response of the people around. Luke points it out twice because he wants his readers someday in the future, including you and me. When we read this story, he's prompting you to say, does this freak you out? Good because it freaked them out, and it's freaked everyone else who's read it since then, and if you're freaked out, you get it. You're listening. But fear, when it comes to God, is a fragile subject. God does not use things like shame or terror to lead. That is not the kind of fear that we see happening in this story. We see a kind of fear that's being invited where God is saying, is this weighty to you? Is this important to you? Do I matter to you? At what level of gravity do you come into our relationship? Is faith in me something that you take seriously? And then we begin holding up these stories from our story. Are we going to be apathetic like Nadab and Abihu? Yeah, I'll just, you know, God's out there. We'll just kind of do things in life. We'll figure it out. That's apathetic, man. Are we going to be hedging our bets like Ananias and Sapphira, trusting God, but also straddling back to something else or maybe several other things? These stories exist for the community to know that God is not messing around. He is serious about you. His love for you is so real. He is fully in and he wants nothing less than All of you, no compromise, no co-parenting with homicidal maniacs, only life, only the best life, only life to the full. That's the first thing that we get out of this story. The second thing is this. These are a couple branches I pulled out of my backyard today. Lilacs, am I right? It's happening this time of year. As you look at these, keep your answer to yourself, but Which one looks alive? 
which one is alive? My friend Caleb Noteware years ago shared this idea with me. And if you know much about anything that grows, you know, oh, well, the first answer is really easy. Which one looks alive? Well, this one. It's beautiful. It smells great. This is why you should sit in the front row, because you could actually be experiencing what I'm experiencing right now. It's a lilac in spring in Colorado. It's got leaves. It's green, vibrant purple. Which one is alive? They're both disconnected from the source. They're both dead. Both of these have no chance unless they get grafted back into a source. Ananias and Sapphira, I think we're okay to settle for this. They didn't want lives that looked like that, but this was okay. I think as we hear this story and as we consider this concept of what does it mean to fear God, I think it's that kind of a metaphor. So the second thing I think that this story has to teach us is this. One of the teachings that Jesus gave to his disciples that stuck. In fact, John, who would have been in or very near the room as all of these things were going down, John was the one who wrote down this teaching the best. And he says this. Put that up on the screen for me. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and it withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Man, he wants you to come alive. Man, he wants joy for you. Man, he wants this connection of like, what do you need? Just ask. Do you see the love of this parent who's saying, man, we have a relationship. I just got you back. Let's do life together. But you've got to be with me. I don't want you to posture. I don't want Shakespearean verse. And I don't want apathy. Where are you? Perhaps the hardest tension of being a follower of Jesus is knowing that you're supposed to be good, that your aim is perfection, but then living in the reality that you show up every moment of every day falling short. We often, I often, worry about bringing the broken parts of myself and wonder, will those be the things that he'll wrinkle his nose at and then threaten me to fix it or be damned? So my response oftentimes has been either I start to fake it, I start to ignore this part of my life or this decision or thing that I said, and I start feeling good about myself because it's now just ignored, or I, we, remain vulnerable. 
messed up and broken and we don't try to hide a thing. Yeah, Jesus wants that. He wants you, all of you. And the kicker, you do have to be perfect to be with him. But that's the beauty of this story. You being perfect is actually not something that you have to do. Not on your own. That's on Jesus' list of to-dos. And that's how it works. Your sin, you just expose it to this man, Jesus, and then allow him to be the one that comes in and fixes it, that does business with it. And then you receive his grace and forgiveness. You receive his perfection as your own. Let me bring out the band. Today is May 14th, 2023. What is it for you today? What are you holding back? What are you hiding? How are you hedging bets? Are there ways that you're lazily claiming the title follower of Jesus? Are there things you're inviting to influence you? Things that are co-parenting you with God? And just know, as you consider your life and your story, his way is not shame, but it is conviction. And as we sing today, it is critical that this is time that you spend with him face to face, abiding, being real, warts and snot, and procrastination and scars, all of it. Perhaps it's your own desire for money and for comfort and your fear of letting go of it all to live a life of trusting God and only God. Maybe for some, it's time to simply be honest with the fact that you've been running from him. And if he's calling you home, today is the day to be real about it. If you wanna come home, if you're lost, if you don't know the way, it's scary. But you do know that you need him. And it's time to be real with that too. You can't find your way to him on your own. Whether you know him or not, call out to dad. Let him find you instead of you being so worried about trying to find him. You have to be real. You cannot perfect yourself on your own. Abiding means bringing the real version of you. So either bring that version or choose not to, but these stories exist to remind us that there is no other way. You are not called to a simple or common life. If you're in, you're in. This is serious business. It is fun. It is exhilarating. It is creative. It's beautiful, it's gritty, it's serious. What is holding you back? We all struggle. None of us is put together. As we get ready to sing together, I would just continue to invite you, just lay it all out. Let him see all of it. And then in that place, let him find you and embrace you, scars and warts and all, and be with your dad. For those that are able, let's stand and sing.